All right, who's familiar with Gabriel's horn? Anybody remember it from their high school calculus class? Maybe, maybe not. All right, this is one of those higher mathematics equations that can simply blow your mind. I'll give it to you in a nutshell because I have no idea what it means. <laughs> this Gabriel's horn has finite volume but infinite surface. Finite volume, infinite surface area. Now, if you're like me, this makes absolutely no sense. I can't wrap my head around this at all, so I don't even try to understand it, and I don't even accept it. In fact, Noah came home, he's in calculus, and they had their finals this week. He's like, Dad, Gabriel's horn? I'm like, nope, no interest. Don't care, it's not true. He's like, Dad, it's true. It's a math equation. And he tries to explain it to me, I'm like, this is perfect for my sermon Sunday. <laughs> but I have no idea what you're talking about. See, it was a long time ago I knew I would be no good at higher math, and that's why you know, my life took a different direction to more writing and other things. Because in order to grasp this mind-blowing contradiction, the first thing is you have to be willing to first let go of what you already know is true and open your mind to the possibilities of something more significant, even if at first it doesn't make sense. You see? So I am very committed to basic math. For me, two plus two equals four, and I'm fine with that. This to me is impossible, so I don't care. Okay? And I bring this up because I find a deep similarity between this and grace. Grace is mind-blowing, and for so many people, especially maybe Christians, who are convinced of their own theology as truth, grace is foolishness. And I, I'm stealing that from Paul. Paul called grace foolishness. But I think he was right. It seems foolish to everyone. Just like that Gabriel's horn to me seems foolish. If it has finite volume, then it can't have infinite surface area. That's just dumb. Okay? And so in reality, all of us find grace foolish at some levels or other. Remember, appeasement theology runs so deep, it's virtually in our DNA. So while we may be attracted to grace, and maybe we even understand grace a little bit, and maybe even believe in grace as, as a thing, it's really hard for all of us to surrender enough of our appeasement theology to fully get carried away in this higher truth. So we end up making the strange mix of appeasement and grace which isn't grace at all. Right? And that's why Galatians is such an important book for us, for Christians. You can always tell where someone is on their journey towards understanding grace by how they feel about the book of Galatians. I know a lot of Christians are like, Galatians, come on. That's nothing, that's elementary. Let's go on to something bigger and better. Galatians is, is mind-blowing. And I think we need to come to terms with what Paul writes here because as long as we're not completely slept, swept away by the foolishness of grace, maybe we're not embracing grace at all. Maybe. And if grace is the final reality, then that can be problematic. And it is this tiny little section of Paul's letter that for me is like his Gabriel's horn. This little bit is mind-blowing when we take the time to hear what Paul's really saying in these few sentences. Okay? Now, in fact, as I was studying for this, it was amazing how many different ideas 
scholars, theologians, other writers have about what Paul's saying in these few verses. And the more I read and the more I realized there were so many different things going on, it dawned on me that I think what's happening is the foolishness of grace that Paul is talking about right here is, it's just too much. And so instead of accepting it, it's just, well, let's add to it or change it or switch it up or do something to it to make it more palatable to those of us, all of us, that would rather be into the appeasement side of religion. So what I want to do is a quick short review of why Paul wrote Galatians, because it's been a while since we started Galatians, and we'll dive into this Gabriel's horn bit that I call it. So Galatians filled with new believers, right? Like a lot of the cities that Paul went to is filled with new believers. Paul had introduced them to this crazy grace, this mysterious grace, and they had been willing to open up to it. And even if they didn't understand it completely, they knew it was higher truth than their own theologies of appeasement and their own little religions of appeasement, right? But then there was a group of what we would probably call Messianic Jews, okay, that were there, and they started to explain to these new Gentile believers the basic truth that they were committed to, which is they were telling them, if you really want to be part of the inheritance, if you really want to be part of the family of God, then you have to observe the law. That's what they were saying. Okay? But if you have to observe the law to get that benefit, then that's appeasement, right? You're obviously having to appease somebody. Appease God. So that's what they were telling them to do. All right, now, I want to make this side note, because this is an important thing for those of us that are, are, are reading the Bible and studying Scripture. We have to be careful when we read the New Testament. Because... We shouldn't be fooled into thinking there is a Jewish-Christian tension in the New Testament. Okay, that's something that came out of maybe the Reformation, maybe not. And it's a not a healthy way to read the New Testament. Because what it does is it takes passages, potentially like this passage, that is directed right at us. And we say, well, that doesn't really apply to us because we're, we're Christians, we're not Jewish. Don't do that. All right. First of all, first of all, the idea that Paul or Jesus were comparing Judaism and Christianity is a misnomer. They were Jewish. Number one, and number two, there was no Christianity. Okay, that's not what is happening in the New Testament. There was following Christ who preached grace, and there was following appeasement. So Christ comes along, and to the Jews, he preaches grace. And a few other Romans, Gentiles, that were listening to him. But he was preaching grace. He was explaining, listen, you don't need to appease God. What a wonderful mystery. Magical, incredible mystery. They killed him for it, because that doesn't fit with appeasement theology. Paul, who was like, yes, said, oh, i got to tell everyone this, because everyone has a religion in which they're appeasing God. Okay? So this is, this is the narrative of the New Testament. And try not to get caught up in this Jewish-Christian question. That, that, that tension really doesn't exist. The tension is more about, you know, every religion has appeasement. And now today, Christianity, as religion built up around Christ, that's what's happened, right? A lot of Christianity has become nothing but another appeasement religion, just with a more acceptable face. So Paul writes definitive letter on grace. And why it is the way, as opposed to all other ways. 
grace is the way. So Paul writes this definitive letter. And here in the small part, it's mind-blowing, and this is why I call it Gabriel's horn, and that's why I was using this, that, that metaphor to get started today. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at the two pieces of this. Like Gabriel's horn has two pieces, a finite piece and an infinite piece. We'll look at two pieces here, and, and then we'll get into it. So the first piece is at first sort of hard to see until we step back and understand what Paul must be saying. And when we, if we are willing to let Paul say what he's saying here, it's, it, it's a wow moment. It's a mind-blowing moment, okay? He says, and now you want to go back to those weak and miserable forces. Now think this through. Remember what I just said about what's going on in Galatia. He is not talking about people backsliding, like we talk, like to talk about. And he's not talking that they're turning from good Christian living back to horrible pagan living. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, no one here is telling them to, to, to go and live like pagans again. That's not what's happening. What he is fighting is the idea that in order to be in God's family, you have to be obedient to the law. The law that we love. It's our law too. Think about this. Okay? And I think this is why so many theologians mess with this passage. They can't allow for that. Or they make it totally about the Jew-Christian question, which it's not. See, this statement here about seasons and, and, and days and years and, and what have you, that's a reference to the Jewish calendar of festivals and feasts following the law. Okay? But it's not a Jewish... Christian question, it's they're going back to doing something in order to have salvation, in order to be in relationship with God. So do you see what Paul is saying? Following the law, the good law, being incredibly good Christians to earn or appease God is the same as weak and miserable forces of their pagan religion. Is, see what I mean about mind blowing? That's what Paul is saying. Paul, the Apostle Paul who loved the law but understood the value of the law was not in doing anything for us. Weak and miserable for us. Wow. Because here's the thing. What Paul was saying, what Jesus was saying, it's not the name of your religion that matters. It's appeasement versus grace that matters. It is who is your God that matters. And any God, no matter what name we give them that needs to be appeased, is not God. That's what the cross is about. While we were yet sinners, before we appeased God, he saved us. It's mind-blowing. And, and I know, well, David, I know this, we've heard this, but do we know this? Do we let it seep deep inside? Do we fade into the mystery? Do we let it overwhelm us and absorb us? And so, at this point, this is exactly where the infinity piece, not, it's not really infinity, I'm just using that, the, the Gabriel's horn image, right? Comes in. Paul writes, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. This may be the most brilliant statement Paul ever wrote, and he wrote thousands of them which, I mean, we spent three years in Corinthians. I kept going over how brilliant 
Paul is in his compositions and writings. This might be the most brilliant statement he ever wrote. First, he ad- I, I, I'm going to try to break this statement down. He addresses so clearly the appeasement versus grace question, especially for those of us who claim to believe in grace. This is why I said this is such an important book for Christians. All right, so here you go. This, this, this convicts me, and hopefully those of us that have been in this faith for a long, long time, this will help us break out even further by diving into this. This is a purposeful statement. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, this is not Paul writing something and saying, oh, I'm wrong, I've got to correct that. Paul doesn't do that. Paul would have edited out. What Paul is doing is setting up a contrast for our benefit. A powerful contrast for our benefit. Okay? He says, you who know God. In other words, those of you who have seen grace, right, he's talking to these new believers, those of you who have seen grace, have surrendered enough to let it start to draw you in as a possibility, even if you don't understand it fully, that is a wonderful first step. You know something about God. Now, finally, that it's about grace, right? I mean, that's for me the whole Gabriel Horn thing that I'm using this morning as a metaphor. I get each side of that. It just doesn't make sense to me. They go together. It's impossible. A lot of Christians get parts of grace, but they can't reconcile it with other parts of the Bible, and so they refuse to fade into the mystery. I refuse to fade into the mystery only. You see what I mean? Because there's that little voice, that little appeasement voice that's been there forever telling me, don't, don't fade into it. But then he corrects his statement right here because he knows the temptation of this knowing God. He knows that we are always tempted to make our knowledge the main issue. And we will make our knowledge the mechanism, if you will, of salvation, of redemption. And isn't that exactly what so many theologies in Christianity have done? Made our correct knowledge about God and the things of God the mechanism that saves us? We have. I was brought up in an incredibly reformed church that's all about grace. But it was certain, if you didn't believe the right thing, you were not saved. Which is why every other branch in Christianity was not saved. That was the joke they told about my church. But you could pretty much tell this joke about every church. But the joke they told about my church, and I'm not picking on my church. I love my, the church I was brought up in. I'm thankful for it. You could tell this about people right here at Cana. You could tell this joke about Cana too. But... You know, you get to heaven and you're on a tour and St. Peter's is pointing everything out. And everyone's having a great time. And then he says, oh, we, throughout this next block, no one talk. Be silent. And so they walk down this next block along this big white fence. And then they get uh, past it. And then they get on to the next block. And he goes, all right, everyone can talk again. And someone's like, whoa, St. Peter, why couldn't we talk back there? And he said, well, because the people from that church are there and they think they're the only ones here. That's the joke. That's making what we know the mechanism of salvation. Right? But that's not the mechanism. God's grace is the mechanism. God 
dying on the cross for us, rising again, is the salvation of all of us. We have to receive it, but that is far different than doing anything to cause it. So let me use our metaphor again this morning to try to explain what I just said. I do not need to accept Gabriel's horn as a true mathematical equation. But whether I do or not does not change the fact that it is true. If I accept it as true, it's not making it true. And if I reject it as false, it does not change the fact that it's true. I'm the one at a loss for living without this truth. Now, in the case of higher math, I could care less that I don't have that truth in my life. Doesn't help me one bit to understand calculus. But, when it comes to matters of the soul, why reject something just because we don't maybe understand it? Part of the reason I love grace so much and I'm committed to understanding grace more and more, but I'm so committed to Jesus Christ, is because all other theologies I can understand. They're very human. Right? But grace is so not human. Another way of saying this, is, I've used this illustration before, and I think, I can't remember who I stole it from, though. I think it was Capon, but it might not have been. But anyway, it's a great one. If, if I give Kevin $10 million, if I choose to give Kevin $10 million and I bury it in his backyard, I have given $10 million to Kevin. If he never digs it up, he will never have the benefits of that $10 million, but it's his. Likewise, if he builds it up, I mean, if he does dig it up, that didn't make him have it. I gave it to him. I put it there. The mechanism was my choice. Grace. Our God has chosen to love us and loves us. So Paul says here, grace is actually not even about you knowing God. It's rather about God knowing you. And here comes the total mind-blowing moment that has really helped me. In Hebrew, the concept of knowing is so much different than our Greek influence understanding of it. Right. We, we think of knowing as, I know your name is Kevin. I know we're in Worcester, Massachusetts. I know the Patriots are great. Things like that, okay? But in Hebrew, it is an intimate knowing of another. It is intimate relationship based on full disclosure. So we are known by God. This is grace, and this ultimately sums up the entire gospel. See, I want you to think about this right now. How many of your thoughts from now and your whole past. How many of thoughts have you had, the thousands and thousands of thoughts are known only to you? How many words have you spoken that might be only known to you or maybe one or two other people? How many things have you done that only you know about and no one else knows about? We all have more thoughts that are not known by others than we do that are known. Most of us, if we're old enough, have things we have done or said that very few people know about and we don't want anyone to know about. Right? We hide so much of who we are from each other, don't we? Even those of us that have incredible marriages, 
We still hide. Even if it's not even purposeful hiding, it's just sort of subconscious hiding. You're not going to share the stream of thoughts and consciousness that you're always having. You guys know you're human. You're like, I hope you're like maybe, maybe you're not like me, but you can't control what comes into your mind. Some of the stuff that comes into our minds, some of the stuff some of us have done. So why do we hide it? Fear. Fear. Fear of being misunderstood. You know, sometimes maybe this has ever happened to you, but like you have a dream and you tell your spouse your dream and they get mad at you for it. <laughs> it was just a dream. I had nothing to do with it. Well, imagine telling someone something you really thought on your own or some of the stuff you did. So we're fear of being misunderstood all the time. We're afraid of being rejected all the time. We're fear of not being loved. And this is the great tension that defines our brokenness more than anything else. The more I've been thinking about this, there is a primal, a good, a given at creation desire we all have, and that is to be known. This is what the, the, in, in, in the myth of creation, sorry, the, the creation story, the symbol of nakedness, that is what this is all about. They are completely known. And we all have that ancient, no, primal desire, good desire. But that lives in tension with another desire we have that is ancient but not primal. It is not good and it was not given to us at creation. And that is the desire to hide from being known because of fear. Fig leaves. That is the ultimate image of now we are no longer known. Because we don't want to be. But we do want to be. If we could just be known and not rejected. If we could just be known and loved. And that's why Paul says right here, good news, you are known. That primal desire can be met because it is being met. God knows you. And God loves you without condition. You don't need to earn this love or appease anyone for this love, and you do not need to live in obedience to get this love. This changes everything. Everything. Imagine being a Gentile or a Jew who for hundreds of years your family has participated in appeasing a God. And Jesus shows up and Paul shows up and says, hey, no, 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 no. You are known by God. we allow ourselves, or better, if we accept this being known, you know what? Then we'll be free to live in obedience. We'll be free to live authentically in this world as little Christ because we won't be afraid of anyone else because we're known by God and we don't have to be afraid of him. Paul says somewhere, I'm only afraid of God, not afraid, but he meant it in this way. Like, I don't have to be afraid of anyone because I just care about what God thinks and God loves me. Anything else is an empty attempt to be loved. 
Now, here's the irony of it all. And, and this hit me when I was thinking about this this week. When we are trying to appease God, whether we're not saying that we're trying, you know what I mean, when we're trying to be these super Christians, have you ever thought about how ironic that is? Like, we're fooling God? Like, like think about that. Like, I, I, I would, for this week I'm driving down the road, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's exactly what I've been doing. I, I'm thinking I'm actually fooling God. Like, God doesn't know. Like, God doesn't know what I did when I was 22, that none of you know what I did. No, I, he, he doesn't know. Of course he knows. Like, he doesn't know the thought that I had yesterday and all the thoughts that I have every day that I would never share with any of you. Of course he does. It's an empty charade to try to appease God. Think, and yet religion has convinced us that's how it should be. So we charade each other. Oh, we're good Christians. Well, it doesn't matter what I think about you. And it doesn't really matter what you think about me. God knows. You can fool me, I can fool you. God knows. This guy with a very unfortunate last name, but a brilliant theologian, Richard Lovelace, in a stunningly, sorry, See, I shouldn't have said that. Most of you are like, why is that an unfortunate last name? Okay, it's all right. all right. So, in a stunningly powerful piece, exposes this brokenness in Christians. This is powerful. This, oh. And please, when you read this, what's going to happen is, if you're like a normal human like me, you're going to start thinking of people in your life like this stuff and just let it be about you. Let it be about us. Christians who are no longer sure God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians, because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environments about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical justice. But envy and jealousy and other sins grow out of their fundamental insecurity. And if that is true, and I know it is, because that has been me at many times in my life holy. It still is me in part as I continue to move more into grace. That is the division of the Christian church. So my question then is, why not instead embrace this truth that we are known? Instead of trying to win God's love and being so insecure. It's so beautiful and so much easier. So here's an exercise. I was thinking, all right, how can I, how can I wrap this up and, and give us an exercise that we can do? It's a mental exercise. I want you to imagine your entire life from start to finish is a movie. And I'm not just talking about what people see. I'm talking about every single thought you have ever had. Everything you have ever done in private or in public, 
every single thing, it's all there, it's all on film. Everything. And you have to choose one person to watch it with you. Who are you gonna choose? Probably no one, right? You probably don't even wanna watch that film. I don't wanna watch that film. But here's the good news. There is someone, God. He's already seen it. He will watch it with us and still love us. And what's better, as we fade into that mystery, all those things we don't want people to know will fade away too. Because that's what the love of God does. It just makes it fade away. If love was an ocean, we'd all be drowning. I think that line goes, how he loves. This is mind-blowing stuff. This is grace. My prayer is that we all surrender more of what we know and embrace the great mystery of what we don't know. Because in the end, it's not about what we know. It is instead the fact that we are known. Amen.